April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am very pleased to announce that this episode has been brought to you by James Reed of J.M. Reed Bamboo Fly Rods. I first became aware of James years ago when he kindly donated a gorgeous single-hand bamboo rod to my Flies for Fins initiative. As the years passed and word spread that he makes some of the world's most beautifully casting bamboo two-handed rods, I simply had to add my name to his waiting list. I finally got around to meeting James last fall on the Skeena and was thrilled not only by his craftsmanship, but by his kind heart and warm laugh. In the words of James... I made the decision to sponsor this podcast based on my strong feelings at these interviews with anglers as they share their life stories in their own words and voices will prove to be an invaluable resource for future generations. I wanted to support Anchored not only for what it brings to all of us now, but also for what it will bring to many more in the future. If that isn't enough to encourage you to check out his rods, you can find more about James and his rods at www.jmreadbamboo.com or on Instagram at j.m.readbamboo. The McMillan family name is one to be proud of. John McMillan, son of famed Bill McMillan, has devoted his entire life to the protection of the West Coast's wild steelhead stocks. John has led the way on a multitude of projects and is not showing signs of slowing down anytime soon. I met with John at his quiet home in Port Angeles, Washington. In this episode, John and I discuss steelhead biology, the gene pool, and all of the questions you've always wondered but haven't been able to find the answers to. raised uh, in southwest Washington at the mouth of the Columbia River Gorge, and my family had a house that was right on the banks of the Washougal River, Uh, and I felt it was like paradise being a little boy and having this. I had about a mile stretch of river behind my house that had other homes along it, so it was all private land and nobody else could go in there and fish. So every summer when those steelhead would start to run, I would just go out there as soon as I could in the morning and I would have all day, whether it be snorkeling or fishing. So yeah, I was raised there in the Columbia River Gorge and I felt uh, like that was a really big part of my life growing up that way, being so close to the fish. We should probably start with who your father is. Yeah, my my dad is Bill McMillan. Uh, Some of you guys and gals may know him. He's a, a fly fisherman and a longtime conservationist. And I think in our household, uh, while my dad was certainly a hero to me, our common hero was a Canadian, right? It was Roderick Hag Brown. And so (laughs) certainly there is something unique about Hag Brown and and his writings and his life permeated my dad and influenced him so much. And that was passed along to me. So uh, I wasn't always left attended. My dad was out there to make sure that I wasn't going to drown or or fall down and nail my head (laughs) on the rocks. But... I would say he gave me the leeway to make those mistakes, too. Right. So, did you have any siblings growing up? I had a sister. And she uh, she fished a little bit. She snorkeled with me, but okay. she didn't fish as much. We mostly, together, our activities in the river included usually uh, playing with crawdads. Uh-huh. Yeah, having crawdad fights, which was pretty fun as a little boy. And... Uh, <laughs> trying to pluck the poor periwinkle from their case to feed the little coho. Oh, well, I guess there's, uh, yeah, it could be worse. That's right. I could be eating them instead. (laughs) So what age were you when you started fly fishing then? I was one. My dad gave me a fly rod at the age of one in diapers and put me, and it was a cane. It was just a stick with about 10 feet of line and a fly on it, and he stuck me out in the Deschutes River in the back eddy right in front of camp and would just let me whip the fly around because I wanted to wanted to try so Was badly. that the picture I saw in there? That was the picture you saw in there. Oh, cool. So it was an early an early age. I came out with a fly rod in my hand. At what age did you move from the Washougal? Well, I left the Washougal, so I was raised there, went through high school there, and spent the first two years in community college uh, staying around that area because I still love to fish, but I left the Washougal 
uh, I think around 1992, I moved to Montana for a while. I was interested in leaving behind some of the, you know, the conservation challenges that our mm-hmm. fish face in the Columbia River, and I thought Montana might be the solution. But was it? It wasn't. I, I think, like as you well probably know, and many other anglers do, you can't you can't run from a problem. And usually, what you're seeking in the place that you move to does not replace what you lost. Yeah, exactly. So how old were you at this point? I was about 23 or 22, uh, 23 when I moved to Montana. So I came back from Montana, decided, okay, I'd had a year and a half of trout fishing. I loved it. And it was kind of interesting because when I moved to Montana, uh, I lived in a little town called Clinton, uh, which has probably 40 people. And two weeks after I moved there in the winter, uh, the Unabomber got arrested in the nearby town of Lincoln in Montana so we were there for the entire Unabomber event which was which was pretty cool I think that was more fun than the fishing why what's fun about the Unabomber well I don't I wouldn't say the Unabomber's fun <laughs> but what was fun was turning on the news every day and see that they're helicoptering this they so they took his whole house his little shed that he lived in and they helicoptered it a long ways away because they weren't sure whether it had bombs in it and everything else so I think it was just the interesting thing, and then everybody in on the campus at University of Montana had sweatshirts that showed Unabomber. So, oh <laughs> God, it's there all you go. so wrong. It's all so, so wrong. Montana. <laughs> it is Montana. Were you in Montana going to school then? I was going to go to school. I was going to finish my English degree. I was actually an English undergrad for much of my undergrad, but I decided, look, uh, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do what I love. I'm going to become a biologist. Oh. So I went back. And finished my school at Evergreen State University and had to spend a year and a half there taking a lot of science classes that I didn't necessarily take. And then that summer, after I graduated, I got an internship to work as a uh, biological technician with the Forest Service up in Forks, Washington. Got it. Everybody knows there were no vampires and there were not any werewolves in Forks at the time when I moved there. Uh <laughs> But it was June when I moved up there to Forks, and I was a little bit scared. I mean, I'd been to Forks before, but I also wasn't sure that I wanted to leave behind my summer steelhead in the Columbia mm-hmm. and, and switch up and have this really rainy jury place uh, yeah. where it was winter steelhead. Where are your parents at this point? They're still... Yeah, my, my dad was still living on the Washugal River, and my mom was living uh, just a little bit outside of town. So most of my family was still in that same vicinity Uh Although once I moved to Forks, I essentially left behind the Washugal. It had become built up with a number of homes along the river. Okay. And it didn't feel like the small kind of quaint rural town that had that mix of everybody from, you know, the logger and the, the you know, pulp machine worker to the, to the school teacher. It just didn't have all of that diversity. And uh, it became harder to fish because there was less access to the river. Mm-hmm. And I left it behind. What happens when you're in Forks? Are you a biologist at this point? I started out as a biological technician. What does that mean? Uh, Well, what that means is I essentially um, was a paid intern, a glorified, cheaply paid intern. I would go out and help the local habitat biologist put in things like uh, temperature monitor loggers. I would also help do measurements of stream channel like width and depth and gradient. And we did things like pebble counts to determine the size of the rocks in the river at certain locations. So Hmm. I did all of those things, which was great. It was a great experience. And my internship was scheduled to end in early October, but I had kind of begged my boss to keep me on for as long as he could. And I was living on, I think, $15 a day. I mean, at that point in time, I had an old Isuzu Trooper with 200,000 miles and it had mushrooms growing in the floorboard because it had rusted through. Oh, so <laughs> the good mushrooms? The, yeah, not the good ones, too. We couldn't even get the, get the good ones in there. So I had this beat-up truck. It was dying. Uh, they let me stay for 15 bucks a day, and I worked all the way through middle of November. And then I, I moved back to Olympia to live out of my truck at a friend's house. So I was sleeping in the Zuzu Trooper for about two months until I finally got a call from the Ho Indian tribe and they wanted to, they were going to hire somebody to be a water quality Hmm. biologist in the Ho River. So I interviewed and fortunately I was only homeless for two months and I got the job. So that's kind of 
how my love affair with this little town and its beautiful rainforest steelhead started and all that happened around 1997. Um, did you ever leave after that? I mean, you're still here. I'm still here. I didn't leave. You know, I did have to leave uh, for two years to go back to grad school. Mm-hmm. And that was tough because trading Corvallis, uh, Corvallis is a nice place. Don't what's, get me wrong. What's Corvallis? Corvallis is a, a small, well, it's not too small. It's about 40,000 people. It's right on the I-5 corridor down in central Oregon. Okay. And so it's in the Lama Valley. Um, I have bad hay fever, and it's the grass seed capital of the world. So that didn't work out. So I got a master's degree there in oh, fishery good science. Good for you. Okay. And yeah. So, um, and I did research on, on, on steelhead in the John Day River. And the John Day is kind of this really, really big watershed in central Oregon. It's arid, uh, very dry. Um, and it's a really enormous place. So we spent almost the entire summer just driving around collecting samples of fish. And our whole goal uh, was to answer a question that I've always had, and a lot of people probably do, which is why does one fish become a steelhead and another become a rainbow trout? Mm-hmm. So that was the topic of my, my thesis. Please do tell. Yeah, it's, it's, a cool, it's a cool story, you know. And for me, this question started as a young boy. When I was eight, my dad came home to the house and he was all excited. And I could tell when my dad was excited. It was either that he had ran into this huge school steelhead and we were in a rural place. There's not anybody else fishing for him. <laughs> yeah. And he wants to take me and share it. Or he had something cool that he had saw in nature. And that day he came home and said, John, I just saw an eight-inch rainbow spawning with a 10-pound steelhead. Hmm. I said, no way. I'm eight years old. I know they're the same species, but I'm also eight years old. And this was probably 1979, so we're not exactly thinking the two forms are, are breeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but how did he, why didn't he think that it was just eating eggs? Did he see it, you know, rummaging through the, the gravel? And- he, he, saw it, he saw the milk come out. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so it, it went up and flanked alongside her and released its milk. And it was a very small stream, probably no more than five feet wide. So it was a really, really tiny creek where they were at. So... That was interesting, and I, I think that curiosity to answer that question, why does one fish stay in fresh water and why does another go to the ocean, has a question that's stuck with me for most of my professional life. And, you know, the interesting thing about it is that when you look to other species, in, in like Atlantic salmon or brown trout, European scientists have studied this topic for a really long time. So by the time I got to grad school and was asking the question, they already had 25 years of solid research on the topic. Okay, got it, got it. So it was was pretty well known in their neck of the woods, but a lot of that information was not transferring across the Atlantic, across the United States, to us over here. So Atlantic salmon people on the East Coast got it, but there's not many Atlantic salmon left on the East Coast of right. America. So, And that's why you read about precocious males in the Atlantic salmon works. So is that what these are? These are precocious males? That's the concept. So when I was in the John Day, the first thing we want to talk about is that when you look at fish, we got to consider that males and females in salmon and steelhead and trout and char, all those do different things. And this is because for females, size is key. Because the larger you are as a female, the more eggs you can carry. And the more eggs you can carry, the better chance you have of bucking the evolutionary bet that you're going to produce the big nada. So females should be big. And where do you get big if you're a salmon? You go to the ocean. Or you migrate to a lake. Regardless, wherever you can go to get food, you got to go get big. So when we look at whether a fish becomes resonant or anadromous, most females... In micus, that is steelhead, go to the ocean. The size is so important, and it allows them to produce, say, like, you know, a two-salt steelhead that's eight, nine, ten pounds in size could have upwards of three to 10,000 eggs, depending on the population. While wow. a, a rainbow trout, most of them are maturing the first time at somewhere between 11 to 13 inches, and they're carrying anywhere from 500 to 1,000 eggs. Okay, that's a... Very big difference. Huge difference. And that gives the steelhead a, a great chance. Now, the interesting thing is the males are the ones that show what we call plasticity. And plasticity means that just because your dad or your mom was a steelhead doesn't mean that you're going to become a steelhead. That means that your genetics allow you to also possibly become a rainbow trout, a fish that never goes to the ocean. And it's that kind of flexibility. Plasticity simply says, look, this isn't metal. This isn't something that's really hard. It's flexible. And what we see 
And the John Day is the exact same thing that people had long found in Atlantic salmon. And so that was good. But what we did see was that those fish that tend to grow really fast early in life and get really high levels of fat, body content of lipids, you grow fast, you get fat before you're one and a half, and all of a sudden you typically start to become a resident if you're a male. And that's because the growth itself stimulates the process, a physiological series of processes that we will call hormonal cascade. And I'm not going to get into all of that because so much of the jargon is, so much beyond me because I'm not a physiologist. So the size starts to trigger a series of hormonal effects in the fish. Those hormonal effects can only be carried through to completion if you have fat. So imagine if you're a young kid and you go through a growth spurt, and that might be associated with the onset of maturity. But you're not going to be able to complete maturity unless you have some surplus energy because it's costly to produce eggs and gametes. Mm -hmm. So you got to grow fast, and then you got to have enough fat to complete the maturation process. And what is happening is the body is essentially saying you're growing really well, You've got a lot of food and things are really good. Why risk it? Mature now. And it's not like the body's telling him that with language, but he's telling them that with these changes in the physiology, the blood chemistry of the fish. Okay. So the blood chemistry, the growth and the fat lead to changes in blood chemistry. And the blood chemistry influences uh, the pituitary gland in the brain. And the pituitary gland in the brain will then release a bunch of hormones that initiate the maturation process. So I like to put it this way. The question, well, I'm going to go back. The question is, for me, why, I mean, most of these fish were seen, some matured at four inches in length. They were that small. They're tiny. They're Peter Dinklage on Game of Thrones or Danny DeVito and Twins. They're really, they're the equivalent of very small human beings. Yeah. The question in Steelhead as well, and in Atlantic Salmon and other fish too, how can one male mature at a small size and ever have a chance of successfully reproducing with a female Steelhead when she is also being courted by other large male Steelhead? Mm-hmm. Well, they do it through a tactic or a, a behavior that we call sneaking. They're sneakers. They're sneaky little bastards, you know? (laughs) Danny DeVito's. Danny DeVito's. Don't trust the mailman. Hide your daughters. Hide your daughters. (laughs) (laughs) They're the gardener and the mailman. All right? So do not leave your wife at home with a lot of packages or garden work because it just doesn't work out. So what happens is that the female doesn't really probably want that little guy to breed with her. Go figure. <laughs> totally. She's trying to select the big dudes. But when those big dudes go in, when she when she starts to lay her eggs and they start to release their sperm, they're incapacitated. I mean, how many of us are thinking of doing anything else where we're having an orgasm other than having the orgasm, right? right? And that's exactly what's happening and, with them. And that's exactly what is happening. So at that moment when they're all incapacitated... <gasps> that's when the sneaker gets the in The little there. shitbagger comes in and he will dive in and he will dive underneath those fish oh. and he will be right on top of the eggs and he will release his sperm. In Atlantic salmon, they oh. found that he can also block the sperm of the big guys with his back. Oh my God, that's so dirty. I know, it's really, I mean, when (laughs) when you think about it, I think of Caligula or any of the old Roman movies. I mean, this is, this is like Hugh Hefner's world, I guess, if there's a a playboy and a naughty show to these fish. It is their, it is their naughty side. Danny DeVito sneaks in when your husband's passed out or doing something else and incapacitated and all of a sudden that little kid that you thought was yours was not yours. And Oh my God, but what's Mother Nature's reasoning for this? What's, I mean, er, er, there's always a reason. So there's, there's always a reason. And the, and the important factor is, is there's also a genetic component to this. So it's not just whether they grow fast. It's not just whether they get fat. There's a genetic component. And those fish that become steelhead, that become go to the ocean and they find this in brook trout, brown trout, Atlantic salmon, and steelhead so far, the fish that eventually become steelhead have really fast metabolisms, inefficient metabolisms. So 
you know, they're the human being that might need the equivalent of 5,000 to 6,000 calories a day because that's just how much their body burns and they never get fat. Mm-hmm. But it also means that they're burning or wasting a pile of that energy just on metabolic processes, right? Just trying to main, maintain your body every day. Those fish that become residents tend to have efficient, slower metabolisms. Okay. So the reason we have this gradient, and really it's a, it's a continuum because at the one end you have males that are maturing at four inches in size in steelhead. On the other end you have, of course, mature fish as big as 45, 46 inches. Huge, right? Mm-hmm. And across that is a continuum of sizes that literally goes from 8 inches to 10 inches to 12 inches, right? That whole range. All of those are likely coded by a metabolic value in their physiology, right? It's likely a, a metabolism difference. It's important because that's diversity. Okay. If they put all their eggs into one basket, they would all have very similar metabolisms. Now, somebody asked, why is it important that a fish have an efficient one or a slow one and a fast one? Well, there's a reason. Because in some years, you're going to have lots of food in nature. Mm. And in those years, the fish with the really fast metabolism is going to be able to take advantage of all that food. Say it's a great salmon run that year. And mm-hmm. they, they can eat all those eggs. And they're going to eat and eat and eat. Because all of that is rarely going to get them to the point where they're full because they continually burn it. Now, on the other hand, you're going to have years when you might have drought, low flows, not as many salmon. Things are not as productive. And in those years, your more efficient metabolisms are going to be absolutely key to shaping the population for the future. So that's why it's important to have small and large fish is that Really what we're asking is why do you have slow and fast metabolisms? And it's the same reason humans do, because we occupy very different environments across this, you know, place that we call home on earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Africans tend to have different metabolisms than people from Northern Europe and people from Southern part of South America and tend to have different metabolisms than Eskimos. And it's just the way it goes because all of our food supply and the growing seasons that we have for all the things we eat are really different. Oh, this is fascinating. So where does Russia come into play then? Well, Russia to me is interesting because I, I actually, I think like my father, I'd lost a little bit of hope in, in the lower 48 that we were ever going to stumble upon pieces of research that told us what steelhead should look like in essentially an untouched place with no hatcheries, no habitat destruction, and minimal fishing or no fishing effort. So Russia for me was important because when I worked with the Wild Salmon Center, we had a partnership with University of Moscow, and we had a number of their great scientists who had been researching steelhead on the Kamchatka Peninsula. They had been doing that work for well over 20 years before I met them. And I was just shocked by the information that came out of Russia. And what we see in Russia are what I thought to be three very interesting patterns in the first is, despite having all of these watersheds along the peninsula, about half the watersheds are dominated by rainbow trout. They have very few steelhead. Oh. About the other half are dominated by steelhead and have very few rainbow. And those watersheds are sometimes, the mouth of the watersheds are sometimes located less than 10 miles from each other. So they're in the very near proximity of one another. And what that is suggesting to me is that this is tremendous diversity at a really big scale, but it's also happening at a small scale. Because, you know, an example here is that one river that has its mouth 10 miles down the road is 80% steelhead, and the one that's 10 miles further down the road has 80% rainbow trout. How do we arrive at that level of complexity? The the message for me, the take-home message, was that diversity is really important to steelhead. And that was interesting because when you go to most of our watersheds in the lower 48, we've had lots of habitat alterations. We've had decades of over-harvest, decades of large-scale hatchery plants. And what we've probably see now is a very simple representation of what once existed. All that diversity that we now see in Russia that we apparently do not see here very much in the lower 48. Okay, so let's talk about that, what you just said, what once existed. Yeah. The Springer steelhead. Right. When I read a lot of, is it Rolf Wall? Yeah. And yep. I read Hag Brown, and I read a lot of these guys' books from back in the, you know, the early to mid-1900s. Yeah. They often speak about these small spring steelhead. And today when I say Springer, people think I'm speaking about Chinook or King Salmon. But I'm talking about steelhead Springers. 
Um, there's rumors. Some people say that most of them are gone. Um, can you just elaborate on what a Springer is? Because even the people, the steelhead guides today, when I mention Springers, they say, no, no, there's only winter run steelhead and summer run steelhead. And, and I go, but I think there's another run in there somewhere. And, and now I'm just unsure. So maybe you could help me understand. I, I think you nailed it there. I mean, that that is probably, to me, the Springer life history that you mentioned is probably the most clear in my mind, a piece of the, the fabric of steelhead that we've lost in my lifetime. And it's not completely gone. What we refer to with a Springer life history is a very ultra early timed entering summer steelhead. So a Springer is a fish that for me on the Washougal would enter sometime in April, maybe early May. They're entering at a completely immature state while winter steelhead are entering right along their side in, in a com mature state. completely yeah. mature state. And so the springer is not the steelhead that's the winter run, that's mature. The springer is that very early timed, very immature summer steelhead. And that fish is likely not going to spawn for perhaps 12 months. It might remain in the river an entire year, maybe even longer in some cases if they don't spawn till May. But how long do typical summer runs stay in the system? Typical summer runs are probably going to enter, of course, sometime through June through October, maybe even early November, and they're probably then going to spawn sometime from uh, February through May. So we're talking a summer, a typical summer run steelhead is going to wait anywhere from three to nine months to spawn. The springer is okay. going to wait from nine to 12. Wow. So it is about three times as long as the latest entering summer run. Why do they fight so much harder? Well, that's a great question. I think they fight, and, and in fact, that you raised that is the last, the only clear memory I have in my mind of a Washougal summer run steelhead that was wild on the fly from all my years is a Springer. And it was when I was 15 years of age, and I was skating a muddler. It was late April, and it took it, and it's like you would talk about with the Dean River fish that you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. It hits and it's gone. And all you see is backing, and the next thing you know, you look down, and there's a hole in your finger because that backing is burned through your finger. Right. I pulled the fish in. I had 10-pound test, and it's 5 pounds. It's tiny. Yeah. It's a little girl. And I think that's what makes them unique is they're not very big, but the reason they can remain that long is because they have tremendously high levels of fat. So they come in in a very fresh and what we might call the peak of their athletic prime. Okay. And they have piles of fat to burn so they can afford to fight hard as heck. So I have a, a question for you then. And, and you are going to the Dean this year. Yeah. And as am I, but I'm above the canyon, you'll be below the canyon. But... Every year when we were there, Stevie, my brother-in-law, and I would get into these tachia fish. Now, the tachia is a tributary. And, I mean, it would be June and we'd be getting these fish, which is surprisingly early. But we're pretty positive that they come in sooner than that, right? And they're all about six pounds. And they're like, yay. And, and quite... Um, um, broad. Yeah, thick. very, very, very thick. Kind of like footballs. Yeah, yeah. And they pull... Like hell. I mean, a five-pound tachia fish was going to kick ass to a 15-pound buck. I mean, you know, pound for pound. Sure. Could those have been springers? How, uh, how can you tell? Yeah, I, you know, I think when we call something a springer, it's really just a terminology that we get. It's, a, it's kind of an artificial delineation that we give them. Uh, but I would say, yes, they probably are springers, and I see no reason that they don't exist in other watersheds. It's just that what I tend to notice is rivers tend to be closed at that period of time. Mm -hmm. In a lot of places, they're not open when they come in. Because the winter runs are kelting. Winter runs are kelting, down. and it might still be really cold. The winter runs are spawning in some places. Whatever it is, they haven't. that hasn't been a traditionally big part of the fishing season. And so I think those life histories can go missed. And I think what you're seeing is really cool. You know, you... I, I think taking scales would be interesting. I, I think the other thing is just getting photographs of those fish. The more... The more anglers document things like that, the more likely it is that, that people like me that study them are going to have the information we need to go and say, look, here's something really interesting that's happening in a population that you know well, but you might not have considered this. Mm -hmm. and, and I think those Springer fish, I mean, there's just nothing that I've ever met that, that fights as hard as they do and is so beautiful. And when you touch them, it's just... You know, it's like it's it's just like they're wearing armor. They're perfect. They're hard. You know, they're fully 
fully built fish. You know, they're the they're the F-350, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, so you get all this knowledge. You, I'm assuming, did you go to Russia? I never been to Russia, no. I, you know, the, the, the challenge of going to Russia for me at the time was that I was going to essentially have to, and this wasn't a bad thing. I wasn't going to get to do as much science as I was going to be fishing with a yeah. lot of our donors. And yeah. I loved our donors and there were some great people. But my ideal, being the hermit that I am, my ideal situation was to go to Russia, you know, with one or two of the Russian scientists who lived out there. I still might go, but you I haven't. Should. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, why not? Why not? I've got to see these. I got to see these fish at some point, and I've only lived uh, vicariously through through the lives of others. So I think that yeah, it's time that I get my ass over there. So let's get back to your career then. You get all this research. You start to raise awareness here on the West Coast, and then what happens? Well, I think you know. Are you still working with the Ho Tribe? No. So after the Ho Tribe, I um, I eventually left the Ho Tribe after a couple of years. Uh, I was offered a job with the Wild Salmon Center. Oh, okay. So a nonprofit located out of Portland, Oregon. Pete Sovereil and Guido Rar and Zan Ogero were were the core of that group when I was when I first started there. It was very small yeah. and it's so large now, but they've done tremendous work. So I worked there for I think it was seven years, and my goal there, the Salmon Center hired me to go conduct snorkel surveys and habitat measurements and do the best science I could to identify the best salmon habitat in the Ho River. And the Wild Salmon Center was working with Western Rivers Conservancy and Western Rivers Conservancy and and Sue Dorhoff and uh, Josh Kling had worked really hard to raise a bunch of funding and they were going to buy land in the Ho River, which has now since come to fruition. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of land, thousands of acres of the Ho have been bought and protected. And so my research was trying to help guide some of those purchases. Protected how? Protected from what? Well, it's protected from future development and logging. Okay. So a lot of this land was going to probably be developed, probably into uh, what we might call summer homes. Mm -hmm. And so not only did we protect it from that development and future logging, but the Ho River Trust, you know, manages the land, allows access. So people get to use, fish, hunt, hike on all these places that they would have otherwise lost. So Awesome. That was a lot of fun, and during that same period of time, I was still doing research on steelhead in the Quileute River system, and a little bit in the hoe, and I was trying to understand how the rainbow trout interacted with the steelhead, which led me back to that question that's kind of bugged me for my whole career, which is, why does one fish become a steelhead and another rainbow trout? And what I was seeing was that those male rainbow trout in the rivers like the Salduck and the Kalawa were mating with female steelhead. And it was particularly so at the end of the season. So fishing, by the time late May came around, there were still a fair number in some years of bright females entering. Not a lot, but a fair number. And those females uh, were coming in, and many of the male steelhead had been what we called depleted. They had been fighting the whole year. Oh, okay. You know, depleting all of their energy reserves to try and mate with females. And by that, by the time that happens, and some of the... Some of them die. Some get killed by otters. Before they even get to spawn? Yeah, or they might spawn a little bit, and then they'll die. But most of them probably get to spawn a little bit. But what we were seeing was that those rainbow, in some cases, were the only male mates that female steelhead would have otherwise had. Wow, it all makes sense. Okay. So they are going uh, hand in hand, and that's not unusual. Research since, I was just doing behavioral observations, but research since that time, Uh, by Todd Siemens et al. in a little tributary out here on the Olympic Peninsula found that in some years, 50% of the steelhead that we catch were being fathered by these little male residents. And that doesn't do something to the gene pool where you're now having smaller steelhead? It does. It, it, It can make steelhead smaller a little bit. It can also make more residents because you're passing along a gene that tends to promote residency. It doesn't make for sure. But isn't this gender oriented? I mean, does, exactly. do, the, do the females ever stay in the freshwater? They do. And in fact, you know, we have places like the Deschutes, the Klamath River, the Sacramento River, the Cowichan, places mm-hmm. that Alaska, um, places that naturally have high levels of productivity. So the fish can remain in the system and grow to a big enough size that can effectively produce during their first time of spawning, they can produce about half the eggs that a female steelhead would produce in their first time. Then, the kicker is that 
few, very few female steelhead survive to spawn a second time, but a lot of rainbow trout do. In fact, survival rates for female resident rainbow trout to spawn a second time after the first in the Deschutes River in Oregon are 70%. Wow. So that means if that fish can spawn the first time with, say, the female steelhead in the Deschutes has 4,000 eggs. The first time the rainbow trout spawns, she's going to have about 1,500 to 2,000 eggs. The next time she spawns, she's going to be about three inches bigger. Ah, more and she's going to have about 2,500 eggs. So by spawning two times in her life, she is going to produce equal to or more eggs in that female steelhead that only gets to spawn once. Wow. So it's, That's uh, so amazing. Okay, when did all when did all this come to light? Well, when did you figure that data out? That that is relatively new. We recently yeah. published a paper on um, a big paper with a number of researchers trying to look at all of the papers that have been published. So I went through every paper that's been published on steelhead and rainbow trout, and I went through not only those papers but every paper that's been on the same topic for all salmonids and tried to figure out. What are the patterns and what are the processes? And we went through and looked at this and we came out with this couple of really simple conclusions. The first is that anadromy is a response to freshwater environmental adversity. Oh, explain what that means, please. My, I, I know what anadromy is, and just for anyone who doesn't, it's a, it's a fish that goes from the freshwater to the saltwater and back, right? You nailed it. So anadromy, when you go to the ocean, that's a response to your freshwater rearing conditions as a juvenile not being very good. They're mm -hmm. adverse to you growing large and getting large enough to produce enough eggs to therefore survive and produce offspring. So I like to ask the question this way, why does one animal migrate and another not migrate? Because that's really what we're asking in rainbow trout and steelhead. And if you think back to it, it's not much different than what kids left their house at age 18 and what kids stayed with their parents through age 30. Those kids that had home, home cooking, home cooking, cupcakes, laundry done for them, and a steak on the table stayed at home until they're 30. Those that didn't, it was adverse. It was not going to be good for them. They got the hell out of Dodge and made their way, like it or not. Right now, your chances of survival are much higher living in your mom's house bedroom. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, the risk and reward of leaving can be either really high or really bad. And that's like an anadromy because when you go to the ocean, survival's really low. It's a big risk. You're more than likely than not, you're going to die. In fact, your chances of dying are about 95% for most steelhead. Oh, really? I didn't know that. 5% is a good return rate for steelhead, which means 95% of the other little buggers are going to die. Now, that's why fish become residents. And, and so... The concept is you migrate from one area to another if there's not enough food or habitat for you to reproduce. Right. So what about in these winter steelhead streams? A lot of them are quite close to the ocean. They are cold, barren. They're, they're not very prolific. Yeah. Do winter steelhead streams see a lot of fish that end up becoming residents? That's a great question, and it's... It, it would appear, based on the data that we have now for our populations as they exist, that no, their residency, resident rainbow, or precocial males, whatever we want to call them, uh, are rarer in coastal populations where you have winter steelhead than they are in coastal populations or inland populations where you have summer steelhead. Okay. None of us know why one fish becomes a summer steelhead and another a winter run. It's never been studied. I always wondered that. Nobody's ever looked at it. Nobody's even... As far as I know, I'm the only, and I, I hate to say this. No, no, this it, is what I've it, heard, so this is why we're here. Go it drives it. me crazy that somebody with more resources than I has not asked this question. But my bet is, my best guess, and of course as a scientist, all we can do is guess, and half the time we're wrong, and the other time we're wrong, but we move a little bit further towards correct. Mm -hmm. So the best guess here is that it probably comes down to metabolism. That summer steel that are coming in, they must have efficient metabolisms because they're remaining in fresh water up to a year at some point without feeding. They're starving for a year. The only way any animal could possibly do that is if their body is using their resources in a very efficient manner until they get to the point where they have to spawn. So, But couldn't their metabolisms just be reacting in a certain way as a result of the water temperature? Well, that's a great point, too, because water temperature is the real big driver but behind the variability we see in metabolism on like a daily basis. But mm -hmm. we also know this, 
that if you just look at the standard metabolic rate, that's the SMR we call it, that metabolism is kind of a genetic feature. So that's your basic basal metabolic rate. Now water temperature, the warmer it gets, the faster the metabolism ramps up, the more food they burn. So that even makes summer steelhead MIs more incredible because most of them are persisting in really warm water temperatures for long periods of time in the summer. So they're coming in with a lot of fat, but they're also using that fat wisely. Right. And it's not a decision on their part, but they are smart. So summer steelhead do what we call behaviorally thermoregulate. And that is where they behaviorally go into a system, they find the cold spot, right, the bottom of the pool, a log jam or some tributary. other tributary, someplace with cold water, and they will shove their nose into that, and that can reduce their metabolic rate by over two to 300%. Wow. Those are big deals. So yeah. they need cold water, and especially with climate change, they're going to need all the cold water they can get to make it through all of these changes we're going to see. And that's why when I come back to summer steelhead, so much of recovering summer steelhead is literally about restoring those cold water habitats that they've once had. Coming up, John and I talk about fish metabolisms, physical makeup, and conservation measures. Again, thank you to James Reed. J.M. Reed Bamboo Fly Rods is a small operation that designs and hand-makes modern hollow-built bamboo rods that are specifically tailored to anglers' needs and desires. James focuses on combining the three dimensions of feel, performance, and connection into his fly rods. This unique attention to detail allows him to make a casting tool for the contemporary, traditional angler by designing rods based upon our most current fly line technology, all while retaining the amazing attributes of split cane and the connection it gives us to the history of our sport. Okay, so if I were to take a carcass of a summer run steelhead and the carcass of a winter run and say that that this is before the winter run has become mature. Right. And of course, before the summer run has become mature. How can I tell a difference between the two? Well, we don't really fully understand that. That's a great question. Now, generally, there's only one, one small assumption that can be made. And we know from a little bit of research, which is that the caudal peduncle, which is the tail, the wrist of the fish. The caudal... Peduncle. Peduncadunk. Yeah. That's where that comes from? Exactly. The peduncadunk or the Kim Kardashian, I know, was jealous <laughs> of the badunk on the steelhead. And she took the name and nobody's giving steelhead their credit. So you've got to raise awareness. Caudal peduncle. Steelhead own it. So that wrist on a summer steelhead is longer usually than that on a winter steelhead. Oh, interesting. So... Could that... Just devil's advocate here. Could sure. that have something to do with that typically summer run steelhead because they enter in an immature state? They have more time to make the run, so therefore they can travel further in and hit, hit more canyons. I think you nailed it. I mean, there's no other reason that it makes sense to me other than they're the canyon. They got the long legs. Mm -hmm. They're meant to, to swim up anything and everything. That is so interesting. So, the, okay. yeah, I mean, on the other hand, the winter steelhead is more like the Eskimo. It's not going to do too good <laughs> running a marathon. Right. But he's going to do very good where he belongs. Right. So the, the winter steelhead is, in, and, you know, there's a big difference. When a winter steelhead comes in and they start, you know, they come in usually some, you know, sometimes fully mature, but sometimes not. And they, they could have anywhere from, you know, 4 to four to 8% body fat. And that body fat in those summer steelhead can be up to an over 20%. So. Wow. It's like a sockeye. Versus coho, right? The coho comes in, not as much fat, but that sockeye tastes really good. So mm -hmm. summer steelhead, not only are they incredible, but they also taste much better because they have <laughs> all of that fat in them. So don't kill the wild ones, but kill the hatchery ones <laughs> and enjoy them. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about that yes. after I learn more about you. Okay, so you start working with the guys at the Atlantic Salmon Reserve. What was it? The, the Wild Atlantic Salmon Center. Okay, so yeah. you start working with the guys at the Wild Salmon Center. I did, and I got exposed to a lot of great people. I decided that I needed to go back to grad school, so I went back to Oregon State to get you know the degree. That took two years. Then I um, came back and got a job working as a contractor for NOAA. NIMS, National Marine Fisheries Service. And I moved, I didn't move back to Forks because I was just about to get married and my wife, bless her soul, had tried living in Forks and it's a tough place. <laughs> it, is, she, it is a tough place. It's a tough place. And it's not just because of the werewolves. 
and the <laughs> vampires, but it's a tough place. And she gave it a chance and she doesn't fish, uh, but I love her to death for giving it a chance. She tried for seven months. So I came back and said, okay, we'll make this work. We'll live in Port Angeles. That's a great compromise. That's a great compromise, right? And as you know, that's what having a happy marriage is <laughs> literally about yes. in many cases. And so for me, it wasn't that big a deal. So I moved into a friend's house and I started working on the Elwha Dam Removal Project as a scientist. I worked there for five years. And then just this past year, I took a job as the science director for the Wild Steelhead Initiative that was just started by Trout Unlimited. So I now work for Trout Unlimited and excited to be, you know, I love research and I love the work I was doing. But as you and I have talked about, you sometimes you just need to, you know, we need somebody to convey the information to the general public, to all the anglers who are interested. And I felt like I was going to, I was going to have more value in this life doing that than I was just doing research. Yeah. So. And you're a great spokesperson for it. You're charismatic. You're well-spoken. You know how to, to replace the jargon with, you know, Danny DeVito D with Danny DeVito analogies. I, you're very pleasant. I quite enjoy, you know, chatting with you and getting to know you better. And you're 43 years old. I'm 43. So there's a lot of room here. You're going to be in our lives for a long time. So I people so. need to get used to you. You're going to be here. Yes. So let's talk about what it is that you're trying to do with Trout Unlimited. What's your main initiative right now? Well, the initiative is this, is that um, we, saw, we saw the need for a, what I would call a regional scale initiative to protect the last best remaining populations of steelhead and not just so they can be museum pieces not just so that we can say hey they're protected but rather so we can angle on them so we can fish and interact with these beautiful fish and we can be on the rivers and join them we don't want museum pieces so one of the things from a conservation standpoint that we looked at was that when most conservation issues come up and policy and management challenges are there they're typically done and fought at a local scale right uh, somebody might want to keep a hatchery in one watershed. Somebody might want to change fishing regulations in another. But those groups are rarely, if ever, working together or in concert towards a common goal. And not only that, but we never really have groups working across all of the states in the lower 48 where steelhead are native. So our goal with the initiative, first of all, is to focus on all these states in the lower 48 where steelhead are native. TU has a lot of chapters in all of those states, and we have thousands and thousands of members in those states. Which states are we looking at? We've got Alaska, California, Alaska, California, Oregon, Idaho. And Idaho, right. So we got those states, and each state represents a unique challenge, and every watershed in each state represents a unique challenge. So our goal is to first focus on a few of the best remaining places and try and do our best to work on what we call aligning management with all of this great habitat work we've done. So we at TU invest millions of dollars every year in habitat restoration. A lot of other groups do similar work, tribes, and federal money comes out every year for other local nonprofit groups to do wonderful habitat restoration work. And yet, despite all of these uh, improvements in habitat, what we rarely do is align our management with it. And for an example, on the Olympic Peninsula here where I live, we have some of the best remaining habitat of anywhere in the lower 48. The headwaters of many of these rivers are protected forever and never been touched during the Olympic National Park. Despite that, in all the habitat restoration that's occurred in these rivers, we never seem to increase escapement goals to meet or match all of that great habitat work we've done. And I think a strong argument can be made that our habitat in a lot of cases is better in watersheds now than it was, say, in the 50s and 60s when we were logging without buffers, when we were letting our cattle graze in the streams all day long, when we were taking all of the water out from the streams. We've done a lot of good work, but we also need to make sure that wild steelhead reap the benefits and get to use that newly opened and restored habitat. So that's the big goal of this is to align how we manage steelhead with all of the great habitat work. And we don't think that can happen with just Trout Unlimited and our members right here. That's a key part of it. We think we need to grow the army though. And to do that, we started what we call Wild Steelheaders United. And the goal of Wild Steelheaders United is that anglers can go to our website, read about the things we're interested in doing, and we have a credo for people to sign that we hope they do sign. And by signing the credo, they'll say that they'll support 
the actions, activities, and viewpoints that we're thinking about, and they will get a newsletter from us. And what we hope to do is bring to bear and harness all of that passion that these anglers have to create our own steelhead army. So when we're facing a challenge with steelhead in a place like the Olympic Peninsula, that we're going to also rely upon anglers from Idaho, Oregon, and California, because people who fish the OP come from everywhere in all these states. So it would behoove us to try and maximize our conservation power by employing those people. Let's put them to work to benefit the fish. And people so far have responded really well. I think another key point is that I almost solely fly fish. And a lot of members in Trout Unlimited are fly anglers. But our goal here too is to literally try and bring people together. We're tired of the old culture wars where a gear guy says, I'm not going to hang out with the fly guy because he's a snob. And the fly guy says, I'm not going to hang out with the gear guy because he's a knuckle dragger. We need to bring these people together to set aside those differences because the truth is they're not getting us anywhere. And while we're fighting amongst each other, the yeah. fish runs and our opportunities to fish for them <laughs> are going down the tube. Well, let's talk about the number one management concern that you have, or what, what are you guys focusing on as far as improving management? Well, that's a great question. I think there's a couple of things we focused on. And first, and I'm going to talk about the peninsula, uh, we have a tremendous amount of fishing pressure on the Olympic Peninsula by sport anglers. Could you explain why? Yeah. I mean, I know why, and I know that you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. No. Because you're a professional. But, yes. But in your professional opinion... Why do you think that there's a problem there? Well, I think that we have so many sport anglers that we're, we're essentially catching every fish, in some cases more than one time. And that what we know is that a lot of anglers don't treat the fish, handle them as well as they possibly could. Even with the, the new regulations that you can't lift the fish out of the water? A lot of people violate the regulation. Now, the peer pressure has increased over the last eight or nine years with that regular or seven or eight years with that regulation. So that's great. But people still, a lot of people still bring their fish up on bank, pull them into the boat, don't handle them as well as they could. And we get concerned about that because there is research on Atlantic salmon that clearly suggests that catch and release can have sublethal effects. And sublethal effects are effects that reduce the fitness or the reproductive success of the fish, but don't kill it. So in the case of Atlantic salmon work, what they found was that even exposing an adult Atlantic salmon to as air for as little as 20 seconds could reproduce the amount of offspring they produced by over 100 to 150% in the worst case. So it reduces the amount of offspring that they can that they can have. Yes. Just 20 seconds. Just 20 seconds. And but I will caution this. It's one study. I don't want to apply one study to Atlantic salmon to everywhere, but as a scientist, I will say this, that those results shouldn't be entirely surprising because when you catch a fish, you put it under a lot of stress, and the body, to fight that stress, releases tremendous amounts of cortisol, and that cortisol could be being passed on from the mother to the eggs, and cortisol has a tremendous influence on juvenile behavior. How so? Those fish with high cortisol levels tend to be more timid as juveniles, less bold. They don't feed and compete as well with other juveniles. And as a result, they tend to grow slower and not survive as well. Wow. It's a big wow. But I also want to caution because I'm an angler and I love to fish. And I don't think that, I think the results also highlighted something else, that those effects were only really strong when the temperatures of the water were very cold. Right. They were not present when the temperatures were in the normal range that we would fish for fish in the summer that kind of 58 to 66 degrees everything was fine there no effect but the question to us is these are winter steelhead the water temperatures are colder we could be having fitness losses and so we think it behooves us to be as proactive as we can when we're managing these fish because we think as anglers that the better we regulate ourselves the more opportunity we're going to get in the future and i say it that way because the Olympic Peninsula is about the last place in Washington where steelhead are not listed under the Endangered Species Act. Yeah. The long-term trajectories of all the populations show steady but slow decline over the last 40 years. The question becomes, in 10 to 15 years, these populations could all very possibly be listed under the Endangered Species Act despite having all this great habitat. So what we're trying to do is start a movement. 
Because we're catching too many fish? Well, I don't think it's just that we're catching too many uh, fish necessarily, but we also have high commercial harvest rates on the Olympic Peninsula. The tribes, these are the last only places uh, where we can commercially harvest steelhead, and the tribes harvest every year anywhere from 25 to 50% of the wild steelhead run. Which is substantial. Substantial. That's very, very high levels of harvest for a population of fish like steelhead. So when you harvest a bunch, and then you also catch and release the remaining bunch of fish, then we get to have concerns because it's two effects rather than one. And there is a mortality associated even with catch and release. Is it still 3%? It's it's 3 to 5%. It's really low. Mortalities, and we think that... But, sub- but it's not low if you factor in how many times on average is a fish being caught and released? Yeah, in the Saldic, it was 1.3 times, and that did not account for... Uh, any fishery in May or the early fishery in um, half of December. So on an average, I mean, are some of these fish getting caught on the way up and on the way down? It's hard to say. What well, well, my guess is what's happening, and you as an angler probably get this too, is I think uh, females, winter runs, tend to come in, wait for a week, maybe a month, spawn, and then leave. Males, on the other hand, remain in the system for as long as they can to mate with as many females as possible. And they're the ones that are full of testosterone and pissed off at anything that comes across their face. Mm-hmm. My guess is that Male steelhead, aggressive during the breeding season. We're fishing for winter steelhead, just like a hunter hunts for elk during the rut. Mm-hmm. They're aggressive. They bite a lot, probably. So it's probably males being caught more so than females multiple times. When well, you say multiple times, are we talking two, three, six? We don't know yet. But I will say this. The research that has been done on steelhead and Atlantic salmon, the looked at Catch rates for multiple times shows that anywhere from 20 to 30% of the fish that are caught once are also caught more than once. So is it safe to say then that if the mortality rate is around 3 to 5% for every time that it's caught, if you catch that fish three times, you're looking at a possibility that it's 9 it's, it's 9 to 15%? Nine, 9 to 15% mortality. 9 to 15% mortality. That... Uh, is a big deal. That is a big deal. And and what we see here is that the problem isn't that anglers love steelhead, but the problem could be that we are going to love them to death. And I mention this only because in Washington State, almost all our winter steelhead fisheries have closed. We don't have that many places that are open. The Puget Sound, the Skagit, all those great rivers. But what's happened to the Skagit numbers since they've closed it? Well, that's a great that's a that's a great question too. Is the Skagit over the last five years have been trending um, steeply upward? The population has increased from a low of four thousand fish to ninety one hundred steelhead last year, and it looks like this year is going to be another great year. At approximately, you know, we're we're seeing over ten thousand. I'm I. I I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that that thirteen to fourteen thousand fish is out of the range, but I don't work in the watershed, and I only get the rumor mill. Mm-hmm. It's too soon to tell. But, but we're still seeing a, a sharp trajectory of they closed a Skagit, they reduced the number of hatchery plants, and then marine survival increased. Those fish runs have gone dramatically upward since they closed the river, and it does suggest to us that fishing can have an impact. But we want people. Anglers are important, right? Because anglers. In our view, it to you, and I think me personally, and you would view it. We're the we're the advocates for the mm-hmm. fish in terms of the average citizen. But that's why it's such a, a tough position to be in because you so badly want to promote that we fish that we yeah. we still appreciate the fisheries and the outdoors. Totally. But we, like you said, we don't want to love them to death. So yes. what are you guys doing right now to try to manage that? Well, we're working with the state. The Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, and we're working with the local guides association, and we're also working um, with the Wild Steelhead Coalition. We have a number of groups who have come to the table to form a small committee, and we're working together to try and identify regulations that would appease everybody from the guy who wants to side drift to the guy who wants to swing his fly. How many guides are in the OP, licensed guides? I don't know how many licensed guides there are. Forks has about 3,000 people. That's the size of it. And I'm going to guess that we have 50 guides. Is there a cap to the amount of guide licenses allowed? There's not, no. Should there be? I think there should, yeah. And I think that's something we're talking about, which is trying to find... And this is something that I don't want to speak about in terms of to you taking the reins for this because mm-hmm. the OPGA, which is the Olympic Peninsula Guides Association, has been concerned about this themselves. Yeah, I understand. You, I do understand the politics. Of yeah, this. they're they're trying to do the right thing. And so we're just trying to work with them. I, but because I don't work for TU and because I don't have a political agenda, I'm going to straight up say that 
I think it's ridiculous. And I don't want to see anyone out of a job. I understand how hard it is to make a living in, in the industry, but I mean, and I, I can't even use BC as an example because obviously we have our mistakes too, but I believe there should be a cap. I really do believe there should be a cap. And if you guys aren't going to put a cap on the amount of guides out there, there should be a cap on the amount of fish that you're catching. That's just my opinion on it anyway. Anyway, I, I, no, hey, look, <laughs> I I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. I think you're absolutely right. And I, and I think the guides see it. And I think, you know, we're pushing, we're pushing hard because in some of these instances, we're not all going to agree on things and we are going to have to do things. But we do agree that we all want steel. That's ahead. right. That's the bottom line. And that's what we all agree on is we all want more opportunity. We all want to catch fish. How do we accomplish that? And the one way we, first thing we have to do is make sure that these places that are last remaining best places don't go down the shitter like every other place did. And mm -hmm. we're going to do that if we manage them the same model that we've managed everywhere else, mm -hmm. which is simply to, to allow all types of harvest, to allow any type of gear, to not regulate guides, and then just close it when the population crashes and the opportunity is gone. It's dust to the wind. So we think what we can do is be proactive. Yeah. Let's, let's take that step. Let's cap the guides. Let's make sure that we're especially limiting out-of-state guides that are essentially coming here for a few months out of the year to make some, some money on these fish. We know they love them. God bless these people. That's fine. But you know what? They're taking advantage of a resource that all of us that live here do our best that are trying to save it, right? So we're you, putting in the effort. We're paying the taxes. You mean on. that you can be a guide from a different state and not be a resident of Washington, and yet you can come and and have a guiding license here? It's totally true. And I would guess that a third of the guides that we see on the OP now are from places like Montana and Idaho. Okay. It's a, Got it. It's a big deal. And again, I don't begrudge where the people are from. It's just that we think here to protect our... Look, these are our, these are our star on top of the Christmas tree. They're the best, best winter steelhead populations we have in Washington State, and as everybody knows, they come here to fish for these things because we've got some huge fish. Mm -hmm. There's not many other places you can go in the lower 48 to catch huge fish. Not anymore. Not anymore. So we need to do something. So we get, not only are we going to have to talk about guide legislation, but it can't be all just on the guides. We're also going to have to talk to all of us amongst anglers, and you raised a great point, which is that we're going to have to come up with an encounter rate that we can live with. Can we catch the whole population? Can we catch half of it? Is it 80%? And right now, we don't have an answer for that, if only because the concern about catch and release and sublethal effects and lethal, all, all these things are relatively new. Yeah. So it's kind of new. So, But you're right. We've got to get to a point. And I think you hit on something earlier, is that maybe it's time. It's really hard for the state to regulate all of this. So maybe it's time for us as anglers, and this is something that you proposed, I support it, is that we, we limit ourselves. And I think that's the best way to get things done. I mean, I know there are guys that are catching and releasing in some days 25 to 30 steelhead in some of these OP rivers. That's crazy. The thing is, you don't even remember that many fish. You don't. I mean, imagine if you had 30 marriages before your wife. You're never, I mean, look, we're all floozies, flying or floozies to some degree. But 30 fish in a day is absolutely, I mean, we need to change the expectations of people. 30 fish a day. That stuff, you know, just doesn't cut it. And it's not great from a management standpoint. It's not great from a conservation standpoint. So I think what you mentioned, which is let's limit ourselves. And that's that's the way, and I think that's the slogan it should be, is that, you know, two fish a day is enough for anybody, right? I mean... I think so. Two fish. I mean, or... or or three. But, yeah, I mean, I don't... I, I'm a guide. Yeah. I, I've never had a client catch three fish in a day and say that he's he or she's unhappy yeah your tip is going to be i mean you get three <laughs> fish in a day that's a great day for winter steelhead sometimes you're lucky if you get one yeah and i do think that there's a level of responsibility that we do need to start putting on on top of each other you know Obviously, I'm a big fan of the new Keep Them Wet campaign yes. and, and trying to keep the fish wet. And we're all going through the learning experience. And Dave McCoy and I in his podcast, we had a really great time kind of, you know, debating and discussing that, if you will. But I think that we do need to be looking at each other. And when I'm not going to lie, if someone comes up to me and he's like, yeah, I caught 15 today, I'm going to go, wow, <laughs> good for you. You know, <laughs> and, and I think that we need to stop being like, oh, cool. Yeah, awesome. Where did you get your 15? I think we need to start raising the bar a little and saying, 
Wow, dude, that, you know, that's, that's a shame. I'm sorry to hear that. You know, maybe you should have gone home earlier. I think that we do need to start to kind of tighten the reins a little bit on pretending like it's okay because it's not. And even if you are an out-of-town resident, I get it. You paid $6,000 for your trip. I totally get it. But if you're paying $6,000 for a week-long trip to BC even, you're paying to see the bears and the mountains and the eagles and everything else that goes into that experience. And, and I just... I think it's going to take time, but like I mentioned earlier, when we weren't on on the air, I was talking to you about, you know, people weren't people when people were told that they couldn't retain their fish anymore, it was a big deal too, you know, until until you started to tighten the reins and say that is not cool, you've got to start letting your fish go. And I think that we'll see the same thing with this. We just have to have the balls and the guts to stand up and say that's just not cool. That's not cool. And and I understand economy. Believe me, if anyone in this industry understands economy, I get it. But there's more. There's more to it than just numbers. Yeah, you're you're so right. And I think it's gonna. You know, we want to be a part of that leadership. And we, <clears throat> we all. <clears throat> I know people like you, April, are being a part of that. And kudos to you because it takes people to stand up and try and lead the next generation down the road of angling that is necessary to ensure that the generation after them has the fish to fish for. Mm -hmm. And that means all of us as the population grows and this footprint of climate change and when everything else begins to influence the fish even more, that we begin to take our foot off a little bit, release the pressure. And so, yeah, kudos. I think it's absolutely right. We got it. We have to do it ourselves too, Mm -hmm. because I I think we've all learned that the government is often not going to regulate these fish in the proper manner for us. Right. Well, let's talk about something really educational here, just to kind of lighten it up for people who don't live here and they're like, oh my God, if I hear about politics and conservation Um, one more time, I'm going to pull my hair out. Because even though I don't agree with their viewpoints, (laughs) I know that there are some of those people listening. Totally. Um, It's, you know, when it's your own backyard, you're really passionate about it. Yes. But you said something that applies to a lot of anglers about fish sulking. Yes. And the memories of the You'll have to tune in next time to hear the rest of our conversation because that concludes this episode of Anchored. Stay tuned for part two of John's podcast where we dive into fish behavior, how and why they react to your fly in the water. Please be sure to take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.